Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that dabbles in the mystical world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have new stories including the vehicle sales figures for the first month of 2021, and we have Brian Smith join the program to discuss the technical to the quirky subjects including Scania Ditch's fuel cell trucks, mapping how it is affecting the plans for and your uses of the road system, can learning Latin make you a better race and rally driver, and Jaguar celebrates 70 years since it launched their C-Type racing Jaguar. But what colour should your replica be? You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And there's always our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. January 2021 vehicle sales figures continue a three-month growth trend compared to the same period a year ago. For January, the sales numbers are up 11% and for the last three-month period, the rise is 12%. January sales are typically lower than other months, but several developments appear to be consistent with ongoing trends. Private car sales and heavy trucks account for all the growth, with declines in the other categories of business, government and rentals. Of the top 10 vehicles, 8 are utes or SUVs. Toyota Hilux is the number one bestseller, Ford Ranger is number two. The Toyota Corolla in sixth place and the Hyundai i30 in seventh place are the only two passenger cars in the top 10 and both have declined in sales for the month. The greatest SUV growth in absolute numbers is in the two smallest categories. Another significant trend has been the increase in sales in small delivery vans up 20%, larger delivery vans up 63%, and small trucks, 3.5 to 8 tonnes, up 40%. Bill Gillespie is the Vice President, Brand and Franchise Development for Hino Trucks Australia, whose overall sales are up 50%. That so-called first mile of delivery, which is a distribution work from big warehouses in the last mile, which is delivery into people's homes or businesses, that world has been shifted, we think, permanently. And what you've seen, of course, is a big growth in the light-duty truck market. The online business in Australia's percentage of retail went from 13% to something in the range of 24% of all retail. So that's almost a doubling of last mile delivery business. So so what that's meant, of course, is that that whole uh, logistics world's been shifted and turned upside down in a very short space of time. So, yeah, I think big shifts and uh, big environmental, economic and social shifts that will mean this is the way the world's going to be from now on in, I would suspect. Here, Technologies, 
founded by three major German car manufacturers and specialising in digital mapping systems, is helping companies make the most of their transport data. Managing the collection of data that are good for their business is the first step, but then they might package and sell it to other organisations, such as government or non-competing bodies, who use the transport system and are seeking their own efficiencies in their operations. But it's not just throwing together a few available numbers. Stanamira Kolova is the Senior Vice President for Asia-Pacific and Japan for HERE Technologies. Everybody has sits on a huge amount of data. The question is, as you mentioned earlier, it's not just you know having the data, but really meaningfully using it and, and being able to interpret it and then also provide uh, privacy and security. General Motors has announced its intention to achieve net zero carbon status by 2040, and that includes an aspiration to eliminate tailpipe emissions from new light-duty vehicles by 2035. We assume that light-duty vehicles includes passenger cars, pickups and SUVs. GM is said to have shaken up the market with its announcement, but it could be just positioning itself to withstand further government pressure to reduce pollution. Nissan's Leaf electric vehicle was early onto the market but remains its only EV sold around the world. Nissan has a more conservative aim to achieve carbon neutrality for its operations and vehicle life cycles by 2050. Nissan said it would electrify every model in the key markets of Japan, China, the United States and Europe by the early 2030s. That goal doesn't apply to the rest of the world and could include hybrid and mild hybrid vehicles. Joining us uh, for this week is our good friend Brian Smith, traffic planner and traffic engineer extraordinaire. G'day Brian. Hello, David. Late last year, we talked about the project you were working on in Canberra to look at electric buses. We touched on whether you might consider hydrogen-powered fuel cell buses. You weren't supportive of that. Now, in fact, Sweden's Scania truck group, one of the biggest in the world, 110-year history, 50,000 staff worldwide. It's big. It's owned, actually, by Volkswagen. Volkswagen has pulled out of hydrogen vehicles and now Scania has as well. Does that surprise you? I was surprised that it was so quick so quick to happen. So we're talking about trucks here and so at the moment in uh, in zero emission buses in particular, the battery electric bus technology is much more mature and everyone's very interested in hydrogen because it can offer some potential benefits over over batteries and, and so battery buses have range problems. The you know, they, they can't go as far as, say, a diesel bus can. They take a long time to recharge. They take three hours or six hours where a diesel uh, bus can just be fueled in a few minutes. And so what hydrogen allows you to do is to more or less fuel the bus a little more like a diesel bus. It can be quite quick. Hydrogen is then used to generate the electricity, and potentially the range is a little longer. The range is, is probably longer than most battery buses um, but not as far as a, as a diesel bus. So it has some, some attractions, and, of course, it, it, it emits clean air, basically. Water vapour, it cleans the air. So um, there, there has been a lot of interest in, in hydrogen, but the, the actual fuel source, even though there's lots of hydrogen around us, uh, it 
produces a lot of it requires a lot of electricity to produce hydrogen in um, by say splitting water atoms for example so um there were no real sources of hydrogen fuel in australia particularly green hydrogen so much point having a zero emission vehicle that's powered by uh, hydrogen that's been created by from out of coal Dirty coal. So, yeah, battery electric buses were um, the more mature technology and developing quickly. And so it was seen that hydrogen may not necessarily be needed to fill some of the gaps by electric. And uh, I think that the fuel cell has a, a higher degree of complexity, which may make for maintenance costs. I think that there may be some revolutionary change in the future. And two things. One is how to store hydrogen in a more compact way and without having to go to huge pressures perhaps to be able to have a compound which has hydrogen which splits it off rather easily in the car i don't know the other way is that there have been some environmentally sensitive ways of producing hydrogen i believe there was a certain form of plant that releases hydrogen which you could have through tubes in the desert and so on, and, and they just grow that way. But I'm not an expert. I'm not saying that it's going to be in the future, but certainly it's not in the foreseeable future. We were kind of expecting that um, around 2030 we might have a hydrogen industry here in Australia that could produce clean hydrogen at scale. But at the same time, electric battery electric technology was is advancing pretty quickly, and it was this question about whether... You even needed a hydrogen bus. Hmm. But the interesting decision by Scania is around the amount of electricity that's required to produce the green hydrogen. And they've calculated it's three times as much as required for the same performance in a battery electric bus. So there's cost there. And I think it seems like a sensible decision. It doesn't rule hydrogen out entirely for a zero emission uses and it can be used in in more static applications perhaps but it seems like battery will be the kind of the vhs (laughs) the video recorder success stories volkswagen mercedes-benz and in their partners with nissan and ford even general motors and volvo all seem to have ditched the fuel cell at this stage i note hyundai is still trying to and Claims they've just got uh, some new trucks going in Switzerland, which are hydrogen-powered. They're still passionate about it. It's an interesting point. I want to get to this, that companies really have to work out where to spend their money. After the break, we'll talk about mapping, because that's really now the interaction between mapping and driving and efficiency can be a real thing. You're listening to Overdrive. Brian, a mapping of street systems. Now, it's often promoted in the context of the need to support autonomous vehicles, but there are many other benefits. Now, I just interviewed HERE Technologies, their Senior Vice President for Asia Pacific and Japan, Stanimira Kaliva. She uh, was saying a lot of things about how important it is in other areas as well, although still the real key test of the, the efficiency of it may well be autonomous vehicles but mapping brian you've been involved in transport planning we're getting much more link in displaying information by being able to link it to maps have you seen that happen in the industry yeah we we produce these days quite interactive reports where you can click through and see images and 
and uh, have more interactive mapping. Uh, and, and we know of companies that are, um, I think, uh, Spot Parking is one of them, who um, goes out and documents all of the, the the parking arrangements in a particular area, photographing the signs and recording that data and, and then offering it to people to use to help to, uh, I guess, plan their trip and, and know where, the, they, where they might um, park. And, of course, as transport planners, uh, we can do our, a lot of field testing or field visits virtually. You know, using um, street map technology to to find it out. So um, I, I think the real value comes if you then have the user perspective, where you can start to understand how people are using different activities in a space, um, and then you know that gives you, I think, a whole bunch of different opportunities for visualizing how people move around. Visualizing is very important too. Now the only problem is that it comes often with a very bright and colourful in real time. That perhaps that's more truth in the essence but a lot of modeling then worked out how to put the model output into a graphic form with little pictures of trucks and that going down a road Mm. based on the guess of what the traffic would be and it looked so good it just had to be right yes i remember those early days of (laughs) of uh visium and those kind of products where the little vehicles would drive around and 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 our clients were riveted by this stuff and uh (laughs) and then they begin to notice that you know, vehicles would cross over uh, each other, you know, and, and sort of merge into each other. But still, you're right, they saw it as real. But, you know, this data needs to be updated, right? So things do change in, on the ground. And, uh, you know, I, I often have the frustration of, of um, understanding about a new project, but finding that the aerial mapping, for example, is out of date and you can't see it. It's a construction site or a paddock. These things have to be kept up to date so you're not making mistakes about what things are where. I think for autonomous vehicles, it almost has to be live, doesn't it? You, you really don't want out-of-date data informing um, an autonomous vehicle. I talked to Stanamira about this, and she was saying that, you know, you want to update, and that's where vehicle-to-vehicle or vehicle-to-infrastructure communication may come, that your car will drive down the road, and instead of just putting up a sign, you'll put up a sign which has a transponder or something that sends out a message to cars, or another car may be further down the road and skid, and so that indicates that there may be oil or black ice on the road and send you messages. So the up-to-dateness of that has great potential. But here technologies are doing a, a number of very interesting things. One of them was that they then provided a direct interaction with the type of electric vehicle you're driving. And so it could interact with saying, well, I know where you're at with your charge. Mm -hmm. Here's some information. Here's the next charging point. Now, you might be able to know the next charging point, but you have some doubt whether you need to stop or not. The car will start to interact more, knowing the nature of the trip that you're going to go on. It's not that it's just 20 kilometres, but it's 20 kilometres up a hill. Yes, yes. I'm exaggerating to make a point. Or twisty roads. And so it becomes much, much more personalised. Now, what they're doing with trucks, of course, is putting in topography so that they can now set the cruise control on trucks to reduce fuel consumption by 10%. Mm. Yes, that's always made sense, the idea that you could um, use the top topography data to uh, have really smart cruise control mm. and, and give you the most fuel-efficient 
or even the most time efficient um, profile along the road responding to, to hills and stuff. The only problem, of course, is those other people on the road, David, because, um, you know, our ability to freely choose a speed, particularly up hills, is, you know, is driven by people towing caravans and other people who may perversely speed up in some sections and slow down in others. And similarly, you know, you tell someone, okay, you might need to charge soon and there's a charge location ahead. I mean, is it working? Is it occupied? There's a whole lot of, of other elements. But I, I certainly could see that, that um, you know, the, the richer map data sets can, can really help with planning and with, um, you know, real-time information. Ah, now, help with planning. Yeah, you, you raise the point about up-to-date information on signposting or what's happening on the road. The New South Wales government has just redone the contracts for outsourcing of maintenance of signs and line marking. Now, there's always been a concern that if that's driven by price, then you don't go out looking for problems. You wait until yes. a problem has been highlighted. I'm not judging the companies that are doing it. I'm just saying that is a conceptual thing that's weak. And so talking to some colleagues, there's some desperate desire for the government to still have enough expertise to be able to help drive the community benefits of what they're signposting is. But now we find that by mapping and that, we might well be able to get information back from cars. Well, already, I suppose, uh, you know, as we drive around with our smartphones, we're contributing to data on the performance of the streets we're driving on. So, um, you know, Google can easily tell you whether there's congestion on a road because everybody with a Google phone is is reporting back on how long it's taking them to run through these different sections. So, yeah, I, like I'm a huge fan of using data like that to, to better things, but I, I think we have to understand how we use the data and what people might use it for. So what we don't want to do is encourage, you know, more private driving um, by, yeah. I guess, helping people to navigate uh, more easily. Well, that's where the data comes in, that we may well be able to find out much more about it and... I raised with her, and I think she agreed, that companies like Uber have a corporate responsibility for giving non-personalised data about what's happening because it affects our whole community. They are also doing great things with their use of data and getting data sources from companies and perhaps letting the companies then sell them. Again, it's depersonalised and you've got to you know, watch that security. I understand all that. But, de- but depersonalised might well be information that some company knows it might be helpful not to a competitor, but to someone else. Yeah. Coming back uh, after break, uh, Brian, we'll talk about whether we should have some classicists in rally driver training schools. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, we're back with Brian Smith, a transport planner of excellence. Now, Finland's celebrated motorsport driver, Rano Altonen, won many events, and along with the local Australian hero, Bob Holden, in 1966 he finished first, won our famous touring car race at Bathurst Mount Panorama in a tiny Mini Cooper S. We had a segment of an interview I did with him last week, but I asked Rauno about his early education, and he attributed his success in the frantic, dangerous world of motor racing to the languages he learnt, including Latin. Here's what he said. Did you 
have a good education as a youth? Did, did, did it help you come to this, or has this been just life skills you've learnt? Well, my father had the opinion that in the school, the most important thing for Finns is to learn foreign languages, because he didn't speak anything else but Finnish. And he told me that it doesn't matter how good you are in anything you do in your life, unless you speak various languages, you are close to a zero, because the people who you are getting connected to, it's limited. So you must understand many languages, not only that you can talk to them, but that you understand the different approaches different cultures have. So I was put into a language school, and I, I have studied in my life altogether, I think, seven or eight languages. Oh. And in the school, my best subject was Latin. Huh. And I still think that that was very vital to all my life, Latin language, because the Latin, it's not about the language and the words, the communication, it is to understand the system, because Latin had a very clear grammatical system. And it's, it's a similar thing on a way as people today, they study yoga. Try to get into yourself, your mind, your things, your thoughts. So that, for me, my yoga was Latin language. I can't speak it because it's not a spoken language, but that has helped me a lot. I have a colleague in Australia who still teaches Latin, and it's quite often a subject that many Asian students come to it for that, I think, the very point you're making that it shows process and and a, and a bit of history, of course, of how languages develop. To understand that a process is the best way, or the only way, really, to get on top of it, be it rallying or uh, be it in communicating with other people. Is, is that a reflection of your approach? You have to understand the details to be perfect. Because I had very many co competitors, friends, in motorsport, who were very, very quick, and they had a different approach. And they, uh, on a way, that's why they gave me the nickname Professor, because they said that I, I was get, getting too much involved with the details. But, uh, as I said, it's a question of, of approach. And while you drive, then you don't have to think about the details, technically, theoretically, because when you have been thinking about them before, and be, have an, an answer what to do with different things. It's like to have a, a cabinet. You, you open the shelf you need when you when the need approaches. So you have to know it all, but once you know it all, you don't have to keep thinking about it anymore. You have it in your head. That's my approach. Well, Brian, what do you think? Should we be bringing classicists into the... Uh rally driver schools it's a fascinating idea isn't it david that uh that the concentration and uh i guess brain plasticity are so important in so many things and that um that you know focusing on something like that can help you to to perform better in a like a very high speed and scary um uh, driving exercise so uh, look anything to to also improve the way they speak in interviews, I think is it's beneficial. Perhaps we could spread it into the the sort of rugby league, David. <laughs> Instead of the played played good, strong, 
110%. You've just about exhausted every bit of word they have. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so for cab. It also meant, and, and I, I've got a colleague that I went to school with, Robert Forjak, who uh, teaches Latin still now, just run the, the summer school, which was a great success. People came from Hawaii and the USA to Australia to attend this summer school in Latin. It's a great idea. He said, uh, well, Rauno said that, of course, you don't speak Latin now. Well, my mate was a little bit uh, disagreeing with that. Uh, he still values it as a language, and he finds that there's a lot of literature written in Latin, which, in his words, is outstanding. He's just done a great text on Latin in music. What Rauno does is he thinks about things very logically. He doesn't hop in a car and get all bravado. He hops in a car and gets all mm-hmm. thoughtful about what it is, what's, what's happening along the way. You're listening to Overdrive. Now, Jaguar is celebrating the 70th anniversary of their C-Type. We did a story about it, a new story, last week. The... Uh, C-Type Jaguar won its first event at Le Mans in 24 hours in 1951 and went on to do a number of things. But I had a look at some, and Brian, you've, you've had a look at some of the colours they come in. They're gorgeous, I think, Dave. <laughs> it's not just British racing green, is it? No, no. So to explain, these, the, for a short period of time, you can actually buy replicas of these um, Jaguar C-Types made by Jaguar called the uh, continuation so they have a, a builder website so you can go there and and have a look at these vehicles and choose the colors and they are a really interesting group of colors they're pastels really it, it, my favorite is cream it's just such a beautiful color but a pastel blue which is very subdued right pastel green and i think they hark back to that sort of 50s and 60s kind of era 1953 with these cars and of course it's the it's the predecessor of the e-type beautiful car um but yeah you you weren't so keen on the on the paints david the cream to me looks like rich vanilla ice cream the bronze looks like a a sort of off-colored brown suede shoe pastel green looks like the color of the fence you painted and then regretted it You wanted a richer colour to it. Now, according to our Jaguar file expert on Overdrive, Chris Ledbetter, he says that it was very much for the American market. Really? They look so British, these colours. You think so? Me. I think so. I, I look at them and I think that's a very English colour. It's a sort of Ronnie Cray walking out and climbing into a cream C-type, I think, outside of some brick buildings. You know? So, I, look, I, I think it's got a very English look for mine. Our artist in residence, Dean, said that he thought it was from a foreign rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> and he then felt the need to quote Shakespeare, Henry V, straining upon the start, the game's afoot, follow your spirit, and upon this charge cry, God for Harry, England and St George. And if you remember that uh, speech from Henry V, it was very much, you were born in... England and that is your heritage and how great you are. There's, there's a lovely story about the C-Type. It pioneered disc brakes in racing and there's a lovely photo of Alfred Nubea, Mercedes racing manager at the time in 1951, big rotund sort of guy in a suit, bending down looking at the brakes of the C-Type Jaguar in the Reims Grand Prix um, a name Grand Prix, not just for open wheelers, but having a look at it so that he can uh, 
maybe get a sense of what he was missing out on because it revolutionised the cars completely. Well, I've, I've just created one, David, with uh, a cream, a white Roddell biscuit leather upholstery. So, look, <laughs> I, I'm placing my order straight away. Brian, uh, the replica will cost you about $22,000, but you've got to add an engine and gearbox. An engine. <laughs> uh, but you get the ones now from the factory, and I think it might be in terms of millions. Oh, golly. Brian, it's been good to talk to you, mate, and cover a range of serious and uh, not-so-serious issues. I thank you very much for your time. David, you're welcome. And that's Brian Smith here on Overdrive. this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And there's always our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.